This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. We're really happy to be here today uh, to have a wonderful talk by David Kerp and a celebration in honor of his extraordinary career here at the University of California at Berkeley and elsewhere because also as a New York Times columnist he's, uh, and the Sacramento Bee and a whole lot of other places, he's really uh, contributed to the public wheel through his insightful analysis, thoughtful commentaries, and really great job of bringing public policy to the public. And David's career has been about that. I'm going to say more about David in a minute, but let me first just introduce the other members of this panel. Then I'm going to introduce David, and David will come up here and tell you why? No more new education policy ideas, please. So our panel is exceptionally distinguished. Tony Brake is the ninth president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching over in Palo Alto. Uh, he's a distinguished educational researcher who has held a chair at Stanford and uh, at the University of Chicago, uh, done extraordinary work on the measurement and understanding of educational performance. So he brings those kinds of more quantitative talents uh, to the panel. Uh, Janelle Scott is Chancellor's Associate Professor at the University of California at Berkeley, where she holds appointments at the Graduate School of Education, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and the African American Studies Department. Uh, she's also affiliated with the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. Uh, Janelle's work has explored the relationships between education, policy, and equality of opportunity, clearly fundamental issues that David has wrestled with as well throughout his career. Mark Udoff is a former president of the University of California. He was a chancellor in Texas. He was a president in Minnesota. So chancellor, president, not sure how to refer to you, but in addition to that, a distinguished legal scholar uh, who has written on constitutional law, freedom of expression, and education law, Early on, going back 30 years, 40 years, there was Kerp and Udoff, which was a book of cases having to do with educational law. And I think the first book that really tackled that area as well uh, and sort of did a, a basis for uh, classes in law schools. So a very, very, very distinguished panel. But we're here because of David Kerp. David Kerp has been a faculty member at the Goldman School of Public Policy, UC Berkeley, since 1971. Basically, that makes him a founding faculty member. The school was started in 69, but he was one of the first people recruited to be at the school. Uh, and he has been there ever since with some leaves along the way to go off to Sacramento to be an editorial writer for the Sacramento Bee uh, and elsewhere as well. But mostly what he's done is extraordinary work as a teacher, uh, as a, a member of the faculty helping to actually develop the field of public policy, especially with respect to how it relates to law. So we have a course in law and public policy that David basically invented and put together. It's a course, by the way, the main message is simple. Uh, we're going to teach you enough about lawyers so that you can tell them to go to hell. Is that right? Have I got that right? Oh, yeah. It's the talk back to lawyers course. <laughs> it's the talk back to lawyers course. Uh, because we feel in public policy all too often, the lawyers are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Uh, but that's not true for 
David Kirp, who is part of the solution, absolutely. Uh, he's published an enormous number of books uh, that have just really covered every aspect of education and other topics as well, racial justice uh, and justice with respect to the AIDS crisis and so forth. Uh, but on K through 12 and higher education, he's published in a, in a series of books that have really been extraordinarily important. Uh, his book on higher education, Shakespeare, Einstein, and the Bottom Line, is an, an amazing discussion of what's going on in American higher education today. Uh, his book on kids' first five big ideas for transforming the lives of children is the perfect public policy book, a book that takes the science and the research very seriously, but in the end comes up with ideas for actually making a difference and explains through vivid examples, great writing, uh, how those ideas could actually make a difference. And it's the kind of work we need that takes research and translates it into really policy good policy ideas. Uh, there's also, more recently, Improbable Scholars, The Rebirth of a Great American School System, uh, which has won numerous awards and is a, an extraordinary book about what are the right things to do to try to make education better. And indeed, I think that book has a lot to do with what he's going to tell us today. Um, I just want to say that we at the Goldman School have so much appreciated having David as a member of our faculty uh, I know that when I came in 1978, he was a guiding light, the model of what I wanted to be, hoped I could be someday, and uh, I think many people have felt that he's helped to define the school such that it's a, a community with a mission, and it's just absolutely excellent and superb, and David himself embraces all of those qualities, so it's a pleasure to have him here today to talk on the somewhat iconoclastic topic of no more new education policy ideas, please. <laughs> David Kirk. So I have to say, this is, there's some embarrassment in this, this process. I've given lots of talks, but never you know, have I been the a guy who's the center of attention, but um, somehow I'll overcome that. Um, <laughs> I want to thank Henry and my colleagues and the faculty and the Goldman School community, the students, the uh, alums. It's great to see people here who were here when I arrived in the early 1970s. I was eight years old, by the way, when I started <laughs> teaching, so you shouldn't get confused about, about that. Um, a special shout-out to Sarah Bon and Cecile uh, Kabakungan, uh, two staff members at the school. When, when I thought about this idea with Henry, I thought, this is really going to be simple. I mean, give a talk, you know, go have wine and cheese, then go have a meal. You know, it turns out there is so much party planning, it's kind of like a wedding. Uh, and uh, they've, been, they've made it happen every step of the, of the way. Um, I also want to thank Janelle... Um, Mark and Tony for being here. Janelle I've known relatively recently, but I gave Mark his first job. Um, and he'll never forgive me, I think. Um, and Tony tells me that back when he was a young PhD student, the first semester he was there, Mark and I gave a talk about law and education. So this is, a, this is kind of a historical reunion um, chat. Um, the six most irresistible words in the English language, or let me 
tell you a story. So let me begin with a story about Miguel. Um, so Miguel is a student in Union City. You'll hear more about Union City, New Jersey, a poor Latino immigrant town just across from Manhattan. Um, he arrived as a, what was called a second grader, but he literally didn't know how to hold a pencil. Um, he was totally unsocialized. He did things that would get him expelled in any other school district. There, there the, the school system really took care of him. He went to third grade um, and was beginning to improve, but everybody, parents, teachers, administrators, thought it made best sense for him to spend another year in third grade where he could really ripen. And that's where I come in the story, because I spent a year in Union City, roaming around the whole place, but a lot of it in his classroom as, as Mr. David um, to a bunch of kids who I still see yearly and have pizza parties for. Um, so he arrives, um, and in, in, you know, then by the time I meet up with him, he has become what's referred to in Spanish as the little gentleman. He is the role model for that class. And one of the most touching moments to me was in December when I was leaving for the vacation. Actually, two moments. One of the other students said to me in Spanish, um, um, Puedes volver. Can you come back? Which tells you something about who a lot of the kids were. Sin papeles, as they said, without, without papers. Um, but at the, as I was leaving, the kids surprised me with essays that they wrote, some of them in Spanish. He wrote his first English little thank you note to me, and that was extraordinary. Um, so it's in writing, teaching, serving on the Obama transition team, working with local school districts, I've made it my life's business to improve the lives of, of kids. Um, and I start with my golden rule. When I, when I think about education, I think about any program designed for kids or teenagers, the golden room is really simple. Every child deserves what I would want for a child I love. Every child deserves what I would want from a child that I love. It's very simple, very hard to argue with, very powerful. So let me switch to talking a bit about the Goldman School. Um, it exemplifies what social scientists call path dependency, which simply means where you start exerts a powerful influence on where you go and where you wind up. So I was here, the first year of the school had a two-year program. It had eight faculty members and, and a total of 40 students. The essence of the place, really established by its founding dean, Aaron Woldowski, was that this was going to be a supportive community, supporting faculty, supporting students, making sure that what students got was, were coaches and not judges, helping them develop their skills so they go out and have fantastic careers. And it's great to see you know, some of those students here today. Students really interested both in ideas um, and in solutions. They're thinking, as they say, outside the box, but also wanting to get things done. And the, my colleagues are truly congenial and truly collegial. Um, and you have a sense of that because since 1971, only two professors 
have left the school for another academic institution. Only one since 1972, and, and she was looking, she was here as a safe harbor for a year. So only one professor left to get a great, great job, and he loved the place, but he said, if I'm going to have a, a second career at all, this is, this is the time to, to do it. I, I took this all for granted. You know, this was really the one academic institution that I, had, that I had spent any time in. So I thought, this is what places are like. Then when I was doing research on the higher education book, I spent a lot of time in other schools. And boy, wow. Um, you know, remember those, those things that you learned in kindergarten? Wait your turn, work and play well with others, share, you know. <laughs> don't, say you can't, don't say you can't play, you know. God, if faculty could just take a course in kindergarten, be really well off. And, and here, that really is what makes this such an astounding place. So when I arrived here, I'd, I'd been the, the director of something called the Harvard Law and Education Center, and we brought some of the big lawsuits in that field involving racial discrimination and the discrimination against handicapped kids and, you know, making sure that, that bilingual kids were not kicked out of school for speaking Spanish during recess, which was where you were at that point. And I was there for three years. I came here thinking careers run in three-year chunks. You know, you do something, you go on, you do something else. Uh, and then, you know, I, I wondered about two things when I was here for a month or so. One of them was, how does anybody get anything done in this weather? You know, I'd come from, you know, I, I mean, in Cambridge, which is where I'd been, when you saw the first signs of spring in April, it was almost like, you know, you've earned this, this moment of grace. It's kind of a Calvinist kind of notion. You've suffered. Now you're going to earn. You take off a very heavy coat, and, you know, and then, of course, it's going to snow again just to right, come here. And it was like this, only 20 degrees cooler. Um, and, you know, I thought, really? And then the second revelation was they are paying me money to read books. I mean, just think about what an astonishing thing that is. I think public policy, the best way to understand it, at least for, for me, is that it's a license to be curious about the world. You can take any subject and add the phrase and public policy, arts and public policy, health and public policy, sports and public policy, transportation, doesn't matter. Um, and I've taken advantage of that and wandered across the social policy a lot. But I, I've always come back to kids and youth. Now, now, my claim to fame isn't that I know a lot about anything. Whatever I touch, there are lots of people who know more, forgotten more than I'll ever know. It's that I've had the chutzpah to sort of take on everything from prenatal through college. Um, and I didn't intend it that way, but that's where the, my passions led me. So let me talk about two recurring themes in my work. One of them is the, is the title of the talk, No New Ideas, Please. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we have a lot of really good ideas. And we've had a lot of really good ideas for a long time. The problem is ideas come and go and come and go, and nobody has any time to adjust to them. And nobody, almost nobody, figures out that you need to scale up, to build systems that actually scale up things that work. That you take the hothouse experiments and move them into the classroom. We need to know what makes interventions, what makes policy works in many different contexts. Think about the Arctic and the Amazon, that kind of range of school systems. 
We're not talking about what scientists call fidelity to a model. We're not, this is not a petri dish. But fidelity of adaptation, that is, you figure out the guts of what an idea is as it applies to the place in which you are working. That's one theme. And the other is the power of the personal improving the lives of kids. So let me begin with the theme of known new ideas. It was a provocation. Uh, and it's heretical in a university because universities traffic in new ideas and innovations. So one of my, um, my semi-colleagues at Stanford, I'm now spending some time working at a think tank near there, uh, wrote a piece in which he took an innovation that had only been applied to 100 kids and used the entirety of a, of a freshman class of a major flagship university to test this idea. Lo and behold, it worked in a much simpler version than he'd done in the hothouse version. People wouldn't publish it. Why not? Because it was, to quote one of the editors, mere implementation. Mere implementation. It's so depressing. Um, and there are many fields from high-tech to biotech, environment, energy, where innovation is the lifeblood. When I talk, I really have this sort of envy of the people who are in like electrical engineering. You ask them, what's the biggest new idea that's been out there? And they'll tell you something that happened six months ago or three months ago. You can't keep up. It's not the case in the social policy area generally, and not the case when you're talking about people mostly, and, and individuals' behavior, not things that, that you really can work out mostly in your, in your head. The effective strategies in education have been known for a long time. They are familiar to every educator with a pulse. Now, the problem isn't that people don't know them. The problem is that it's hard work to make them happen. So let me walk very quickly from pre-K through higher education. So People are still asking, researchers, skeptics, are still asking the question, does pre-K work? Well, the question is as stupid as, you know, does man have anything to do with global climate change? In fact, it's more stupid because there are controlled, we're not going to control the experiment, another earth, right? Another system of whatever is, is happening. Um, these, we've done really brilliant research. It comes from Neuroscience, demonstrating the importance of early brain development. Um, it comes from stringent program evaluations that have followed kids in, in a couple of cases for 40 years to see what's happened to them. Um, for, and from economics, turning those kinds of data into dollar and cents terms. And you find you get about a 7 to 1 return on investment. Now, Warren Buffett would love that return. And when Warren Buffett said to his kids, now find a social policy investment that's as good in the same league as what I'm doing, they gravitated to early education. So we've also, if you look back 70 years to the preschool in the Oakland Naval Shipyards, Henry Kaiser's preschool, World War II preschool. Everything that you would want in a program was there. Brilliant curriculum, well-trained teachers. They designed their own building where there was a play area in the, in the center. The furniture was specially designed for them. They even provided meals for families that they could pick up after work. 
And the only thing it's that you might say is, gee, that's old-fashioned, is that the kids got castor oil every day. Some of you will remember a castor oil. Well, we all, many of us take castor oil. It's now rebranded as fish oil. So even that turns out to be something that we've had. Now, let's talk a bit about kindergarten through age 12. The reformers, and I use air quotes for that because just a, a memo to policy innovators, grab the word reform because it's not a neutral word. So I prefer reactionaries as my, as my word of choice. They insist that public education is an outmoded, outdated, sclerotic 19th century institution. And what they are passionate about, what they want to see, is markets and technology replacing that institution. The allure of business models, particularly the idea of competition, you get charters, vouchers are going to be the saviors of, of education. They're going to compete with and eventually wipe out public schools. Um, you find a metric, to me- a single metric to measure the quality of your workforce. So if it's a sales force, you look at how many widgets people have sold. Well, if it's a teacher, you look at what the test scores are, period. You've done well, you get a raise, we've done badly, you get fired. Um, never mind how, how dubious the research base is for that. So that's the market, the passion for markets. And then there is this, this wonderful word, disruptive. This is, the, this is kind of the new jargon word in, in policy. And what's going to be disruptive in business? Um, this Clay Christensen, a Harvard professor, develops this whole theme. You can see how from the bottom up, innovations swallow up big firms. Now, the data for that turns out to be extremely problematic. But he decided that he was going to take this idea and apply it to everything, including education. So he writes a book in 2011 and says, by 2018, 75% of public, of public school education is going to be tech. It's not going to involve teachers. Well, two years later, he moved the yardstick back to 2020. I think it can keep going. Um, now, I want to set in contrast to that this town of Union City. So, again, here's a place, poor Latino immigrant school district, most crowded community in the country, one of the poorest communities in the country. So the overall graduation rate for Latinos in the U.S. is about 50% as compared to about 80% for overall graduation rates. These are the kids who basically are wasteballed in most places. So if I, why should you care about Union City? Well, the test scores of those kids are the same as the national average for test scores. How remarkable that is. You take kids who elsewhere would just be basically ignored, tossed out. They'd be like Miguel, who I talked about earlier on. You know, put him in special ed class and he'd stay there forever until he dropped out down the road as opposed to paying attention to this child. So what was it that made Union City work? Lots of things. And I'd be happy to bore you with them sometime, but there's a book out there and royalties to be earned, so I won't do that. Um, (laughs) So the model was, is a model of continuous improvement, systems of support for kids and teachers that begin at preschool and carry on through high school. It's beginning with two years of very good kindergarten and ending with everybody taking the um, SAT exam, not because they think everybody's going to want to go to college, but because they want to say, you can do this. 
We want to think of you as people who can reach this potential. And that's really the mantra of the place. If you commit yourself to the work, we're there to help you. So I then thought, this is a lovely story, but I'm a policy guy, you know, not a New Yorker writer. Is this how I found something that's a one-off? So I um, did some backward mapping, which Henry assures me was statistically okay to do. Um, made me feel good. I didn't have a choice. Um, looking at school districts, big, small, black, Latino, white, mixed, rich, poor, unionized, not unionized, school board, elected school board appointed, that what they had in common was they'd beaten the demographic odds. That is, they had done better than you'd expect given who the kids were there. And when I looked at them, I found there are, there are lots of variations. The idea of building a system of support, not doing anything wild and crazy, building a, a system of support, something that takes time to put into effect. Now, that lest you think that I'm anti-market, anti-business. Nothing could be further from the truth. Continuous improvement is an idea that comes out of a, a fellow named W. Edwards Deming. Now, Mr. Deming is credited with a Japanese economic miracle. When he comes back to the United States, he becomes the consultant to all the Fortune 500 companies. And he says, improve constantly and forever the system of service. That's what continuous improvement is, and that's what Union City has done. In higher education, it's the same reformers making the same claims for the market. The MOOCs, massive online courses, are going to replace professors. Um, For-profit institutions are going to wipe out these traditional universities. And the, they, the reformers, the reactionaries, say the same thing about higher education institutions. They're sclerotic, they're old-fashioned, etc. Now, I'm not saying, please believe me, I'm not saying that all public schools are great or all universities you know, are fantastic. There couldn't be changes made in the way in which they operate. But the strategies proposed, the theory of competition, turns out not to work. For-profit schools are losing students, um, and many of them are closing these days. I mean, the better answer, we know the better answer to how to improve public education, higher education. We know it because we had it in California 60 years ago. It was called the California Master Plan. Those of you who don't know it, you can check my website, as Hillary might say. Um, (laughs) Now, the title of the talk, as I said, it's a provocation. This is not dogma. I went hunting around, and I found 1843, Henry Ellsworth, who's the commissioner at the patent office, and he goes to Congress and says, we are approaching the period when human improvement must end. Well, he wasn't a great prophet, um, and it's also not what I have in mind. So technology can be really useful. Let me give you an example. A kid is stuck. He's an eighth grader trying to do, or ninth grader trying to do his algebra homework, can't do it, goes into class frustrated behind. Teacher is moving on. So there is an app that allows that kid to make an image of that and send it via app, via the app, out there. There are 15,000 people around the world waiting 
to take on these assignments. Within 15 minutes, there's somebody who is working with him online as a tutor. And then when there's an exam at the end of a chapter, they'll look at the exam, grade it, and talk about what's going on. That's amazing. I mean, there isn't a, there isn't a teacher in the world who wouldn't love that as, as part of what's going on. The Internet obviously gives students quick access to information, and if it's used right, it helps them become problem solvers. And we get a lot from the new research in science. The brain development work has shown us graphically how important the first years of a child's life are to her life chances, to the arc of a child's life. We've learned through research about the importance of social social, uh, emotional learning, not just cognitive learning. And we've learned from statistics how you can use big data. If you use it well, you can use it to spot problems in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, the roadblocks. You can figure out from that kind of data what is it that's impeding progress. In college, for example, it is what is now called developmental, what we would call remedial math. That's, that wipes out. That single phenomenon wipes everything out. Um, maybe Tony can talk about um, Statway, which, which his organization um, developed and which is a brilliant way of addressing that issue. But neither the technology nor the science is a substitute for developing a trusting, caring relationship based on respect between students and teachers. That's a segue to my second theme, which is the power of the personal. Those reactionaries would really love to remove people from the equation. They're formula guys. They're model guys. They think what's needed is mechanization and incentives. That will do it all. You remove teachers from the equation. Back in the 1970s, these folks developed what was called the teacher-proof curriculum. Well, that didn't work. But today, economist Rick Hanischek at the Hoover Institute, a very influential figure in education policy, regards teaching in his phrase as a black box. There's no need, he says, for us to understand what's going on in that black box. No need to understand what good teaching is involved. Incentives for teachers and disincentives for teachers are, are the way to boost achievement. But that's not going to do it. The business of building human relationships is essentially messy, hard to submit to formula, but crucial to success. Now, if I asked you, so who's been the biggest, influence, biggest influences in your life? The odds are really good that one of the people you're going to mention is a teacher that you had someplace or other. I don't think anybody is going to say the most powerful influence in my life was a computer program. It's not going to, it's not going to happen. So building those relationships is tough, slow, patient. I'll give you an example from Union City. I was in a math class, an eighth grade math class. The teacher was not particularly exciting. She had her back to the blackboard. She was writing thi- whiteboard. She was writing things on it. The kids were totally quiet, and I just walked into the classroom. And after class, I said, how can you explain this? This wasn't, I mean, how can you explain this? And she said, let me tell you a story. 
Um, last week, a kid arrived from another school district, and as I was writing on the board, he started making fun of me. And the kids around me told him to shush. And the group of them came up to me after class and said, Ms. Jones, we have your back. Now, I don't know about you, when I was like 14 years old, the idea of going up to a teacher and saying, I've got your back, would never have occurred to me as something to do. And that, by the way, is not just for schools. When I looked at a program called Youth Build, which does amazing things with kids who dropped out of school, many of them have been in the criminal justice system, many of them have children, um, and they're doing amazing things, I got the same response, same words. They have our back. They care about us. So let me end by talking about what I think is ahead for education policy and for me. In Inequality for All, Bob Reich's movie, the most poignant moment to me was that he stands up looking straight at the camera and, and wonders if he has been a failure. All these years, he's been pushing these promoting these ideas tirelessly in every way he can think of doing, in and out of government, <clears throat> to, as he was saying, limited avail. Now, those of us, Bob continues the energizer bunny of, of public policy to carry on doing amazing stuff. Those of us who live in this world live a dual life. We're realistic about the possibility of making big changes, and we're hopeful that slow, steady improvement will make a difference in the lives of children. Now, 2017 is a time for optimism on the education front. Now, I don't want to jinx things by saying that Hillary Clinton is going to be our next president, but when I looked at the Times this morning, she had a 93% chance of becoming the next president. Now, that I don't think that could get published in the Stats Journal, but it's good enough for me as, a, as an indication of what's going to happen. Kids and youth have been Hillary's passion from the beginning. She knows, she cares, she focuses on. And that creates a window of opportunity, at least in the national level, to build universal preschool, which she has made explicitly a part of her platform, to use the new federal education law to bring values other than just test scores into the schools, to provide greater access, to address student debt, cut the dropout rate in higher education. Now, that's a great agenda. Will Washington change its ways? Well, stay tuned. Um, When I was in school, teachers told me I have to take up a hobby, like whittling (laughs) or knitting. I never did. Um, That's not how it's working out for me. Um, I'll tell you, I don't know what retirement means. Here's what's happening in my life now. I'm a senior fellow, so you can take senior both ways, um, (laughs) at the Learning Policy Institute, a think tank focused on promoting equity in education. I'm a contributing writer to the New York Times where I'm mostly writing about strategies that work and can be scaled or have been scaled. I'm starting a book on how to boost uh, college students' success and cut the scandalously high college dropout rates. If you don't know it, only 60% of students in four-year universities graduate in six years. And I'm not leaving the Goldman School. I'll be teaching a seminar and spending some time here as well. As Garrison Keillor used to say in Prairie Home Companion, thank you and stay in touch. But let me end 
where this talk began with Miguel. So Miguel is now in seventh grade. He is five foot eight inches tall. That's tall for a seventh grader. He is the center on the basketball team. He is the president of the middle school student council. And every semester he's been on the honor roll. It's stories like Miguel's that keep me going. Thank you. As I was thinking about today, I, um, I, I was reading a student's paper yesterday, and she used a quote from John Dewey that just sort of jumped off the page for me in relation to what I knew you were going to be talking about. And the, the quote was, um, Dewey, John Dewey, the philosopher, said, democracy needs to be reborn in each generation, and education is its midwife. And so as I, as I hear you talking, I, I, I find myself wondering, gosh, we really do in this moment, we desperately need to reimagine our democracy um, and education's role in it. And so I guess as I hear you talk, I want us to think more about the particularities of this moment, the historic inequality, uh, historic levels of racial and socioeconomic segregation that plague our school systems, um, and how we can reimagine K-12 schooling in particular uh, to live up to what I think are still very um, highfalutin ideals for how we function in a democratic society. So I'll stop there. Thank you. By the way, I just can't imagine trying to teach seventh grade graders right now about democracy after what we've seen in the last month. I was going to make a nasty woman joke, but I couldn't find a way to... I was trying to... You're nasty, Janelle. You're just nasty. So let's go to Tony Brake. Uh, it's, a, um, it's a special treat to be here today alongside these uh, two gentlemen and, uh, and of course, this event for David. Uh, as David alluded to, I first met both of them some 45 years ago when I was this very impressionable first-year graduate student. Actually, there's another person in the audience, Mike Smith, in my seat, who is also part of this, what turned out to be this really extraordinary group that came out of this little house on 24 Garden Street in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So 45 years later, the circle returns. I'm um, David's golden rule. Every child deserves what you want for a child you love, which, of course, is a variant on a very famous John Dewey quote, what the best in our society wants for the, their children, we should want for all our children. And, and this question about this issue about what you want for a child you love, uh, just like the Dewey quote, I always want to, think about, want to think about this question about who is the you in what you want. And uh, part of what uh, I read in what's happening in our national political environment these days is this great challenge to the longstanding hegemony of a technical and political elite who have generally thought they knew what was best for you. And this plays out in some extraordinary powerful ways, I think, in education, because just the nature of the institution of public education, as a kind of self-taught organizations person, I think schools are incredibly interesting institutions because they sit partway between families and local communities and the larger associative society, which means what we try to accomplish in our schools is inherently contested terrain.
whose you do we pay attention to as we think about how to try to make our systems of schools better? And I, it continues to be, in my mind, uh, a fundamental question. I think it's part of what, in some ways, often gets in the way of our efforts to improve schools because we're often fighting about aims rather than fighting, figuring out how to put that energy into making our schools better. And I think that continues to be a fundamental question in the context of a pluralist democratic society. So my opening comments. Mark Udoff. Well, I've known David through 15 three-year transitions. <laughs> and it's been very exciting for me and my family as well as for David. Um, I did want to say one thing. If you read David's work, and you really, I'm sure many of you have, I have, what comes through is David is a dazzling optimist. He's a curmudgeon. I admit that. He can be a skeptic. I admit that. But ultimately, David is energized by the thought of the perfectibility of human institutions. I mean, that's really what his life's work is about. And he never gives up. And it's amazing. There's so many reasons to give up. Being a curmudgeon myself and having watched these ideas repeat themselves and so therefore, I'm in 100% with him on <clears throat> the question of scalability. How do you take something that's happening in New Jersey or someplace else, and how do you make it statewide and national and, and, and so forth? And, um, you know, and, and how do you, um, well, it's, it's an Arowindowski problem. How do, how do you implement this? How, how, how do you make this work for large numbers of children when everyone in the system is not gifted by, de- by uh, definition? And uh, I, I just worry a lot about it, David. It's not that I really disagree with you, but particularly when I think of um, some of the problems Janelle talked about, I think of uh, poor kids, uh, kids of color and so forth. Why aren't we doing better? What is it? That, what are the reasons? They may be systemic, institutional. I'm not smart enough to know. But I desperately want to do better. Why do only 60% of the students get degrees in, um, in, in six years, not four years, but six years. And so that's a nagging concern that I have. But we need the David Kerbs. Uh, without the David Kerbs, we have no aspirations. So, David, thank you. So, I take one of the major things that David has said is that we've got to not only think of policy, because you're not against new policy ideas, I think, but you're against them as magic bullets, the charter schools are not a magic bullet. It turns out some are good, some are bad, and so forth. Uh, MOOCs and online courses are not magic bullets. So there's just not going to be a magic bullet. So we've got to take much more seriously how we make our institutions work and how we get leaders and people participating in those institutions who can really help make them work. Uh, by the way, you talked about role models. One of my role models, Alden Pixley, you know, I think he just left, unfortunately, was, uh, it just happened to be walking by. He taught me mathematical logic at Harvey Mudd College, and he's here to hear the logic seminar at the math department today. So it was just really <coughs> thrilling to see him, and in keeping with the whole uh, set of things going on here today, to think that he made a great impression on me. But, so given that, does that mean that we've just got to do a lot more analysis of how institutions work <laughs> And stop getting focused on particular policy ideas. We have to get into the minutia and the hard work of figuring out how we make these institutions work. 
And let me start with Tony on that one, because that's part of what I think you're trying to do at, uh, at Carnegie. When I came to the work at the Carnegie Foundation, what I had said to the board was that I thought our schools were gradually getting better. But the problem we confronted is that our aspirations for what we want our schools to accomplish are increasing at a much faster rate. And this chasm's been growing for some time. And it is likely to continue to grow if we don't figure out a way to get better at getting better. And what would that actually look like to take seriously the question of how is it that our large, complex <coughs> organizations of public education can actually get better at what they do? Because we've, we've uh, tended to place educators in a very reactive mode. We keep throwing things at them, and you know, they keep trying to take them up and do something with them. Uh, and, uh, but that isn't how organizations actually get better at doing their work. And uh, David mentioned... I, I could go on some length about this, but uh, David mentioned Edwards Deming. And um, Deming was really a, a profound thinker because at the heart of his work was actually a conception of the worker. And his view is that the people engaged in the work are central to its improvement. So that means how do we make teachers, educators, active agents of systematic improvement work? We've tended to work as a society where there's this kind of class of better knowers. Us in the academy, those of us who move into positions of, of political influence, and we know better how to get those people to do their work better, rather than a very different kind of conception of how do we actually work alongside of them to actually solve pressing problems that are actually keeping our institutions from becoming more effective at educating all of our children. It's a very different, well, I've written a book, it really is tantamount to a paradigm shift about how technical expertise and organizations actually work to get better at what they do. So Janelle, you study how foundations try to affect education. Are they doing the right things? Or are they throwing too many innovations, too many new ideas, too many fads at education? Uh, so like a true researcher, I will say it depends, right? <laughs> it depends on the foundation and the initiative and the approach. I think there are some foundations, I mean, Tony can speak to this as well, that are doing really important work um, in different areas of schooling. The, the, the areas in which I've spent a lot of time focusing in the last several years have been around the rise of what we're calling venture philanthropies, um, which have really, they're more recently formed foundations. A lot of them form in the early 2000s. Their missions are quite different. They want to disrupt, right, business as usual in school districts. Uh, they want, they regard their spending not as um, support, but investments. They expect a return, often quite quickly. Um, and many of these foundations have focused on, uh, on expanding charter schools, uh, particularly in urban school districts. And so, um, you know, we've talked about in passing in the panel already that the, the research evidence on charter schools has shown that they're quite mixed in terms of just how they perform academically. And, and those of us who've been studying schools, you know, could have predicted that outcome. In fact, many people did predict that, that outcome um, when we were passing charter school laws in the 1990s. Um, but I think one of the things that has been quite detrimental and relates to uh, what Tony was talking about is that in many urban school systems, we've now reached a tipping point in which the presence of charter schools have really destabilized districts' abilities to function financially. And so 
I think we are really at a point, circling back to, to what I was saying initially, where we really have to create a vision for why we need school districts anymore. I really think we are at that point where we have to justify why we need a system of schools um, run by a, a, a bureaucracy or some sort of organizational mechanism because I'm not sure um, that I think that belief has been sufficiently challenged um, by largely uh, as a result of foundation spending in, in Los, An Los Angeles, LAUSD, um, the Broad Foundation uh, issued a paper last year where they, they uh, want to transform 50% of the schools in Los Angeles into charter schools. And so for a school district, this is devastating um, in terms of its ability to serve all students. We know, for example, that, that charter schools tend to under-enroll uh, students who have uh, uh, learning or emotional disabilities, for example. Those children stay in, in, in traditional district schools. And so I think that aspect of spending, um, given what we know about the research evidence, maybe needs to be rethought. Mark. Well, I was going to say it's in human nature to think you've accomplished something when you move around the black boxes to pick on Eric Harnishuk again. He deserves it. Um, and, um, you know, it was the Carnegie Foundation that figured out in the 1930s if we just had systems of public universities, all the problems would be solved. There would be economies of scale, and you wouldn't have to worry about a legislator from, legislator from the south of California looking out for his or her own interest or political interest. And, of course, that was all wrong. Uh, it doesn't, it's, you know, it's sort of like a check, a voucher, a charter school, or a public school. It all depends. And sometimes the foundations are drawn to those solutions, and that's just not very, very helpful. And it is very difficult to get inside the black box. By that, I really mean simply getting into the classroom, getting into the school, getting into the minds of the parents and all that. But that's, that's where the work needs to be done. You're, you're just, those simple solutions are too simple and will not work. Uh, and we know from you know, chaos theory, and there's plenty of chaos, God knows, the, uh, uh, that you know, adjustments will be made in human behavior by just restructuring the, the, the institutional environment. It has to go deeper than that or it will not work. Do we have to find ways to give teachers a chance to talk about how to, if you take the Deming approach, and one of the ideas that comes out of that I think is quality circles and that kind of thing. I don't know if that comes directly out of that, but the, the idea that workers would get together and talk about what they could do to improve the production process do we not do enough of that with teachers? Is that part of the problem we have, that they just come in and they've got a bunch of courses they've got to teach, and then that's it? it, it uh, that, that, it's interesting because in the, in the early 90s, there was interest in quality circles. And you know, this is like all ideas in education, they circle back around. And we were, doing, we were really interested in quality, quality improvement in the early 90s. And, and educators picked up the quality circles but they didn't pick up the rest of what Deming talked about. Uh, I mean, the, the work of improvement is very systematic work. You identify a problem. You, uh, what change am I going to introduce? And how will I know whether or not that changes an improvement? It involves very rapid cycles of cycling through alternatives. Uh, and if you think you've got something that works, well, you deliberately take it out to more places. You expect it to break because you'll learn something from what it breaks. And that kind of knowledge that you have to build up is the essential knowledge for scaling with quality rather than this kind of simplistic idea that if I've made it work one place, 
All I have to do is get everybody else to do it exactly the way I did it, and they're going to get the same result. It, uh, it, that just doesn't work when you start to think about the complexity of organizations and the issues that are involved in bringing some, often these interventions themselves are very complex. You bring a complex intervention into a complex organization, you should expect you've got serious problems of adaptation to take up. How do I get this thing to work here? That's a kind of knowledge we have to build up that it's nobody's space. I mean, academics, we don't, we don't do it. And, and we just kind of hand it over and we expect educators to figure out how to do it, but they have neither the time nor the systematic ways of working to actually typically solve those kinds of problems. So I see David wanting to get in here. So David, I also want to ask, does your talk partly mean we have to worry more about culture and management and issues like that in public policy curriculums? Yes. Um, I once upon a time wrote an essay called The End of Policy Analysis, which was another provocation. Um, but I do think that the balance is, needs to be shifted um, in the direction of institutions, leadership, culture, those factors. But I want to pick up on Tony's point, which is that, that after the Improbable Scholars came out, there, was a, there were a slew of people who came to Union City, and they said, we want to do, how about just doing the teacher collaboration part, not doing any of the rest of it? You know, supposing we have a curriculum that emphasizes, you know, reading early on, and that's enough. Can we, can we just do that? Um, and that was true when I, when I looked at a university that was doing amazing things, um, boosted the, gradu- the overall graduation rate, equal actually the graduation rate from, for minority students, um, Pell Grant students, and first-generation students was higher than the overall graduation rate, which is astonishing and a wonderful model. People flocked to this university, Georgia State, and they said, supposing we just do this kind of data analysis, supposing we just do a reform of math, people want... This is, the magic, this is the magic bullet part of the story. Now, I want to go back to Mark's comment about, you know, not everybody is a, is a genius, and that, of course, is true. But when, and when I went to Union City, I mean, I realized after a while that I had in my head that, that, that good teachers were going to be people, people who came out of the Berkeleys and Stanfords of the world. So here I am in a world in which the teachers come from Jersey City College or Fairfield University or at a stretch Rutgers. And I thought, what's this going to be like? And I, I spent a lot of time in a lot of classrooms, randomly walking in. I had a passport to go any place I wanted. And I saw okay teachers, like the woman, the math teacher I described. I saw a lot of good teachers. And I saw some teachers that I, I've still been trying to get a PBS show to focus on what these people did. They're so talented. Some of them were dropouts. In high school, dropouts in college came back to, to sort of appreciate what they, were, what they were about doing. So it doesn't, you need, talent is connected to organizational structure. It is both attracted to and shaped by the environment. That comment, from the, those, that, those kids who said, we have your back, that didn't just come out of any place. That teacher, that system earned that comment. You can't just say, you know, we're going to have a trusting, loving relationship, you know, high, and then, you know, fire a teacher whose test scores are not particularly impressive. It's not going to work that way. You really have to spend time from the top and from the bottom 
in making that happen. Creating a whole culture. A whole in creating system. a whole, you know, in which collaboration is natural, in which there's lots of testing, but the testing is used for assessment and improvement. It's not used for punishment. Janelle, does that sound right? Um, that sounds promising. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, it, you know, I, I come at these issues as a researcher, but I also was a teacher in Oakland for, for several years. And, and I think, you know, from the perspective of, of teachers, um, they're blamed for an awful lot. Um, that, and some of that blame is, is deserved. I mean, I think, you know, some of the, the tracking that we see by race... Um, you know, that those are teachers making those decisions and they're consequential, right? So I don't want to let teachers off the hook, but teachers are blamed from the highest reaches of government um, as being the reason our schools are not what we would want them to be. And then the very people who are blaming teachers are expecting them to be the solution, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do think it puts teachers in this bind. And so I think the creation of spaces and, and, and um, a culture that encourages their growth um, without demoralizing them um, is really important. And, and, and I think that's the, the lesson from Union City, uh, from your book, David, is to encourage, I think, other spaces to really take that on. Um, but I, you know, we're, we're facing a massive national teacher shortage right now. And I, uh, a lot of that has to do, I think, with, with the policies of, of testing and punishment where teachers are leaving the profession in droves, and in particular, teachers of color are leaving the profession in droves. Is part of the problem we don't pay them enough? Uh, I think that's a, that's a big problem, but I think, you know, no teacher ever went into it for the money, right? So teachers go in with their eyes wide open, but not earning, not being able to earn um, what they see their peers making and being demoralized is a combination, that's, that, a combination. That, that's quite difficult. So I'd like to start thinking about going to the audience. Do we have some questions in the audience? Do we have microphones or? Yes, we do have a microphone, and I see a question right here, Sarah right next to the camera. Thank you so much for doing this. The only way to really honor David is to just keep doing the David thing, which is bringing really smart people together and talking about really, really hard, fascinating topics. So thank you. Um, David, uh, a lot of this sounds like it's a problem about poverty, not a, quote, education policies problem alone. So, so convince me that you're not suggesting that we should just pull our bootstraps up, just like they did in Union City. We don't really need economic reform. We just need clever, uh, harder-working, more caring teachers. I know that's not what you think. But. No, it isn't what I think. I mean, in terms, of, in terms of schools themselves, we can expand the idea of schools so that it, it gives, again, it gives, it gives kids, poor kids, the same kind of opportunities that middle-class kids have, and it gives families the opportunity to engage in education. So, so there's sunrise to sunset, 12-month-a-year schools, they actually bring back arts and science and physical education and culture into the life of kids. And they give families, they're really well run, they give families the courses they want. So it might be a GED course or an English language course or a cooking class, whatever it is that's, that's wanted. But no, you, you cannot solve this problem without addressing the issue of poverty. And this goes back to the sort of the policy frame in which we live. I absolutely think, it's, think that, quote, no excuses approach that the, quote, reformers adopted. A teacher in the classroom can do it. You can get those students to succeed. Forget about what life is outside the classroom. This is crazy for anybody who's been a teacher. This is just madness. Kid comes in with dirty clothes. A kid comes in, hasn't taken a bath. A kid comes in hungry. You've got to do something about that. You've got to help that kid. In the larger sense as you're suggesting, 
You need to address the kind of inequalities we have in this, in this society. And I'm hoping that if this election did nothing else, it has shined, shined a light on the, the massive inequalities we have, that the hollowing out is the middle, of the middle class as well as, as well as of poor people. There's a very powerful, very disturbing article in the New York Times today about the parlous condition of, of males um, in the society and white males in the society. Joblessness, not seeking jobs, drug use, violence, etc. All those issues. So it's not, I don't want to say this is somebody else's turf. I want to make sure that I connect up what I'm doing to that. But I don't want to say, unless you solve the poverty problem, it doesn't make sense to focus on education. I think we need different people addressing questions and putting their responses together. More questions? One over here. So let's get a microphone. Yeah, actually, I'm pretty loud. So <laughs> I have a question. Perhaps it's not germane, but I'll mention it. I have heard a great deal about Common Core. I've been in the university environment as a teacher for 15 years, and what I found over and over is a great number of students came in desperately wanting information and desperately not having skill. Do you believe that there is something in the Common Core agenda that would contribute to the advances you're speaking of? So I want Janelle to say something as well, but let me, let me say about Common Core that it's, it conflates three things. There's Common Core, the standards, which are great, because they really are about constructive knowledge and about collaboration and about idea development. Then there's Common Core, the materials, the textbooks, not yet there. Then there's Common Core, the tests, which got introduced prematurely and produced the predictable backlash that you'd have, parents saying, we're not going to have our kids take those tests. So those three got conflated. And one of the reasons that happened was impatience at the federal level. So when the, you know, when the superintendent of the Montgomery County Schools, which is a very racially, ethnically mixed school district, said, look, let's postpone tests until 2017. We can do testing now, but just as a kind of advisory thing. Arne Duncan, then the um, education secretary, said he's an armchair observer. This is the superintendent of schools in one of the largest school districts in the country. And that was a huge mistake. And what's happened now is Republicans, many of them, most of them, have run away from this thing called Common Core. But if you actually look at what they're doing, they're doing Common Core. They just have rebranded it. As, as something else. But you may very well have more to say about that, yeah, you I and Tony. I, I think you summed it up really well. The, the only thing I would add is, I, I, circling back to this question of implementation, um, you know, I've, my, I have school-aged children, so I'm watching implementation happen in their, in their school. And, um, and there are things that make me raise one eyebrow and tilt my head. Um, and then there are things that I think are quite interesting. And so, but one of the parents asked me, like, was the problem the standards or the implementation? And, you know, I, I guess in my mind, I think the standards become the implementation. And the fact that we have this federalized system where implementation happens in districts and then in individual schools, I don't think there's a common implementation, for example, in the Oakland Unified School District. I think it's a school-by-school implementation, and it's based on the resources and capacities that are available within the school. And so I think there's some schools that are doing amazing things and some schools that are doing very, very rote things that look nothing like what the standards aspire to be. So. Tony? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is, um, uh, talking about the kind of improvement 
that's possible. It does mean challenging some fundamental norms. We tend to carry around a tacit idea in our head that, well, it's, it's all unique. My classroom's unique, my school's unique, my district's unique, and we all have to figure it out on our own. That kind of craft orientation to the work, if you, if you stay within that framework, wide variability in performance is the natural consequence. It's just going to happen. Uh, the thing I think about education is that we're the quintessential large network. There are millions of people doing similar work every day. So for any question I might have about my practice, chances are there's somebody out there who's been working on this, has really learned something that I could build on. I just don't know who they are or what they've learned. And that's very much the, the idea that we could organize ourselves in different ways. It's what we call this idea of networked improvement community because we have this extraordinary capability to learn from each other, but we tend to operate as a field as if we have to invent all this knowledge on our own. And that's, that's what makes me hopeful about this, because we have this resource that's within our grasp to actually tap what we can learn from each other if we just organize differently. Facebook-type technology or LinkedIn-type technology help with that? Well, it, it, this is where I mean. I think about, you got to think like a scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a problem, and you got to think about. Well, we, when doing this work, we talk about being user-centered design and problem-centered. Well, why is it that this problem happens over and over again? Why the work we've done? Why is it that upwards of eighty percent of the students who get assigned to developmental math in community colleges never get out? Why is it that this happens? And viewing it through the lens of the students, what is their experience like? When you do something like that, you start to generate multiple hypotheses. You start to see the system that's producing those outcomes, and it starts to help you to think about the things you need to work on in common. This starts, this, you need a community now to work on this. Otherwise, what happens is, as individuals or even individual organizations, we pick a we pick a hot idea. Oh, we're going to have a boot camp. We're going to have a boot camp. Uh, we're going to add a technology lab so students can go to the lab after class. And we add things rather than saying, let's really try to understand how this system works over and over again. Why does it take six years for students to get through a, a, a four-year institution? Nobody designed the institution to work that way. So how does the system work to produce these and then work back from that to think about improvement. But it takes communities, oftentimes really large communities, to solve problems like this. Otherwise, we just keep going on doing our own individual work and scratch our heads as to why our organization produces the outcomes it does. More questions? Yes. Uh, We're going to go here, and then we'll go back there. Jane. Um, Why don't we get the microphone over here so we can record it? The picture that's emerged from your book um, was of teaching and learning as a very subtle activity, um, conditioned by many, many moments of interaction between teacher and student, some of them based on issues in the child's psychology, some of them based on learning theory, some of them based on the 
practical circumstances of the child's life, whether it be hunger or uh, familial connection. Um, and so learning to teach well and actually gain that improvement in, in learning outcomes for children involves teachers in a craft way actually learning and being in a system that supports them in these uh, very subtle and complicated moment-by-moment -moment interactions with all the children in their classes. What are the innovative strategies or the, what are the opportunities that we're seeing of having structural supports, systematic supports for that kind of improvement in, in teaching practice? I think part of the answer goes back to what Tony was talking about, that is the building of networks. In the schools, in the Union City schools and many other schools, there's collaboration, time set aside for collaboration. Now, collaboration is a, is a funny word because in some schools it means teachers bitching about the paperwork they have to do for 45 minutes, actually getting them to focus on problems and kids and, I, and when they go out to lunch, and I went out to lunch with them, it's not just talking about the sale down in, you know, in Target. They're actually talking about kids and the problems the kids raise. The schools, the schools encourage teachers to wander back and forth among each other's classes. So they, they learn, I'm having problems teaching Jane. You know, what can I do? Well, you know, there is the one third grade teacher who goes in and looks at what's going on and, and comes back. You know, one teacher says, you know, I'm having problems teaching writing. So the system arranges to give a talented writing teacher, talented teacher in writing, time, release time from her class to go tutor that teacher. It's really watch one, do one, and eventually teach one while the class, the original class, and the teacher is left. Some other, somebody else is covering that class. Now, I, I asked these teachers, where did they learn? to be good teachers. How did they learn this? Because again, you know, I just thought they were astonishingly, overall, astonishingly good teachers. Um, and overwhelmingly, they said, from each other. They learned from each other. And they learned within a system that supported that kind of interchange that's going on. They learned from principles whose job was described as helping teachers do their work. They didn't, and pardon me, Janelle, for saying this. So I must have asked this question of 50, 75 teachers. Where did you learn how to teach? They, none of them, literally none of them mentioned their teacher education. So that says something about the craft versus what it is that's being taught the teachers, and it's not something, it's, it's, a, it's a topic about which people have wrung their hands and they've complained and there are all sorts of, you know, reports about how to improve teacher education, and no doubt there is considerable improvement in teacher education, but that's a big part of the story. It's creating an environment that allows teachers to really learn from each other. Good afternoon. Uh, so my name is Stephen. I'm a first-year student at uh, the Goldman School, uh, and Prior to going to Goldman, uh, I was a teacher in LA. So I taught for LAUSD and then transitioned into a charter school. So I was a special education teacher with KIPP LA Schools. Um, and through my experience uh, at the district level, I noticed a lot of 
bureaucracy happening at the ground level, but at the same time noticing that I was a cog in a huge machine where I had no influence in terms of my performance and my development as a teacher and the lack of oversight of school leadership. And when I transitioned into the charter school uh, that, I, that I taught for the past three years, learning that a lot of the, uh, I guess, crafts and uh, techniques and methods that teachers at Union City uh, focused on, I eventually developed and this past year was awarded Teacher of the Year at my school. Going from actually being one of the lowest performing teachers at LUSD to one of the highest performing teachers at a charter school. So my question to you or to anyone on the panel is understanding that a lot of the best practices that happen both at the charter school level and also at the district level, it doesn't really matter what the label is. We just need effective teachers. That pipeline there's a lack of a pipeline to find effective teachers going from the teacher graduation uh, from the teacher prep programs into the actual uh, school districts, whether it's charter schools, public schools, pilot schools, whatever it is. So my question to you is, where can we find effective teachers? Understanding that the current systems that we have in place, where a lot of universities don't have necessarily an education-focused uh, undergraduate program, where we really have to, where districts have to seek out these effective teachers and understanding that there are no effective teachers that come out of programs. They are cultivated and they're, uh, they're mentored. How can we fix this issue of cultivating these, uh, these amazing teachers? So, okay, that's great. I'd like to try to respectively recast your question because for too long we've talked about this as effective teachers. And the problem in my mind is how we get more effective teaching. How we build environments where what the best people do becomes more common. In a craft industry, some people will figure out on their own how to do really great work. And as long as we use the social systems we have now, what they learn will live and die with them. Whether it's an individual teacher, whether it's a particularly good school, we simply don't have, and we don't even acknowledge this idea that we should build on the work of those who came before us. I mean, one of, one of the things that I, I in, used to be pretty commonplace in teacher education programs, I've been out of College of Education now for a few years, is that the culminating task in a teacher education program was to go out and invent a unit of instruction, and go teach it. Well, think about what that suggests about the socialization into the work. It says that every teacher has to invent their own practice. As distinct from, there are people who've come before you. They have learned some things. We should apprentice with them. We should build on their knowledge. We should build practical knowledge about what good teaching looks like and how people come to learn to do it. There is, one of the things I think is actually very encouraging in teacher education is this movement to start to identify what some people refer to as high leverage practices and in different, in different, uh, different pedagogical content areas. And how do we get our novices to become good at doing at least that? Because of course, when you actually get into the heart of teaching, it becomes highly particularized. But to have uh, automaticity with regard to 
a broad set of routines means you can concentrate the limited cognitive capacity you have on what's unique in front of you. To the extent you have to create everything in the moment, well, the, the work in cognitive science tells us what happens when you put people in very complex settings that are emotionally charged. Uh, they will often make mistakes. They will miss things. They won't see patterns in front of them. So, and that's the work of teaching. So how do we help? How do, so we have to build this kind of practical knowledge base and expertise and routines so teachers can focus on what's unique about that interaction that's occurring right in front of you. So it's not an either or, but we, we need to think, I think, about improving practice in these ways. I want David to jump in, but I actually want to go to Mark and ask Mark about how does this apply to colleges and universities and the teaching we have in our colleges and universities. But first, I'll give you a little time to think, and now David. Well, by the way, Kirp's Law is the best teaching, is the least well-paid teaching um, and the least respected teaching. It's the teaching in preschool. And as you work your way up the ladder... The prestige increases, the salaries increase, and the quality of teaching diminishes. <laughs> the money increases. Well, well, well let's see. Yes, well, <laughs> we, get, we get paid relatively a ton of money to, to teach, you know, I've, I've described our, well, uh, yes. And, and <laughs> I, won't, I won't go down that road. Um, but there is no, the only way teachers in higher education learn how to teach is they start by, this is what, how I learn, so I'm going to do this again. And it really is Tony's comment to the max, because there is no nothing that looks like a community of teaching, except at community colleges. Community colleges do a whole lot better job of institutionalizing this. I was in Denmark, a two-year initiation program, not only for new teachers, but anybody who comes to this university. And I said, how about this? That's part of what we did. How about that? Yeah, we do that. I was incredibly impressed. And imagine... The, time, the commitment of time and resources that it took to get there in that, in that process. So that's, that's a response that, that sort of speaks to the, to the range of, of questions that we are talking about. I want to... Mark talked about me being someone who believed in, you know, in social perfection, but here's a, an instance in which, in which I don't. Because Tony's idea is the epitome of a smart, undramatic, unsexy idea that takes patience to implement. And you lay that against a world of impatient school board members who want to see some accomplishments so that they get elected to the city council, superintendents in urban districts who are coming and going within three years, all these new ideas that are pouring into the city. San Francisco has, I mean, there is no city that has more people, particularly from Silicon Valley, saying, we know how to solve your problems, we know how to solve your problems. So, so it's an uphill fight, struggle, to get a district to be patient enough to let teachers learn their craft. If I am a teacher in a school system, the worst thing I can do is to fall in love with some new superintendent's idea because it's going to be gone when the next superintendent shows up and I've got to relearn what I'm doing. So actually the question I put back to Tony is how do you actually, at the political and institutional level, not the practice level, how do you institutionalize your very important 
themes. Well, I, I think you've pointed You're out. Not off the hook, Mark, but we're going to go to Tony for the moment. I feel uh, off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, Mark. If you want, no, 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 I'll, no, I'll take you off from the okay, wild blue yonder. David kind of put me on the hook. Sorry, I was going to say. The there's a there's a wonderful book by a couple of my former colleagues at Stanford, uh, Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao, called Scaling with Excellence. And um, they're kind of, they were my business school colleagues, although Bob's also part of the, they're both actually part of the design school at Stanford. And, and in this book on scaling with excellence, they look at a wide range of organizations. In fact, they don't look at schools. So this is not a story about the problems of education. Uh, and they look at this question about, well, how is it that organizations get good at what they do and do this at very large scale? And one of the common problems that they see when organizations fail at scaling, and uh, they study this especially in the context of the military, because our military often does fail at very large scale. And uh, the military has a special term for this problem that often happens, and they, they call it the cluster fug. And it's, <laughs> that's their term. Uh, I didn't make it up. It's in the book. Uh, and it really involves three eyes that occur simultaneously. One is illusion. I know how to do something that I really don't know how to accomplish. The second is when that joins with incompetence. I don't have enough people to actually do what I have in mind to do. And the third is impatience. And I want it all to happen yesterday. This is a common problem that happens. And when that happens, you get failure. Uh, when we look at, at school systems, districts that have actually improved, this issue about governance churn is really central. There have been that you've tended to have uh, productive labor management arrangements for a long period of time, so people are in each other's throats. You tend to have a prudential leadership in the superintendents, and these places have managed to stay the course on a way to get better at what they do. We've been studying this whole quality improvement in healthcare because this whole concept of quality improvement didn't exist in healthcare 25 years ago. There's a handful of doctors who, and, and you know, it's people have started to look under the hood of what actually happens in our healthcare institutions. If you've read some of the work of, for example, Atul Gawande, there's unconscionable levels of death and disability that are caused inside healthcare institutions. People get come out with problems they didn't go into these institutions with. And so there's been this movement inside the field about how to make it more effective, more efficient, and more patient-centered. And uh, in doing this work, when you found institutions that have actually made extraordinary transformations in the way they do their work, it's the same set of conditions. They had stable governance in their boards. They had a prudential CEO. And they just worked and gradually building up their capability in the organization to constantly work on getting better at what they do on their core processes. That's the work of how organizations get... That's what we know. And it goes all the way back to Edwards Deming. That, and it's yeah, 60 years in lots of different industries and now social sectors that this is how organizations get better. So, Mark, how does this apply to higher education? Well, I'm not sure how it applies to anything, frankly, but... Um, um, I think Tony overstates the issue. These are not atomistic individuals, there's, and there's no exogenetic heritage. They have it, but in your judgment, it's the wrong one. 
So there are already these influences operating. They don't just sit down and invent it. They come out of a peer group. They come out of an environment. They may go to the lounge. If they're at a university, they may say, Professor Snodgrass told me that research is all that matters at Berkeley. Don't worry about your students. That would, that would be collaboration. That would be speaking. That would be, in the modern jargon, conversation, maybe even a little storytelling during the conversation. But nonetheless, it would be pernicious. What's the problem? Yeah. So, but but it's not like those influences aren't there, but they turned out to be the wrong influences. I'm talking about the public school teachers now, because they do talk to each other. They meet in the lounge and all, and and so forth. I think in universities, we didn't take this seriously. I think our record on the whole is pretty horrible. That is, we um, we didn't worry. You know, if Professor Snodgrass is smart enough and writes books, why should we worry about the teaching. And uh, I think we made a lot of improvement. I wanted to say that, Henry. I've noticed at the law school there are elaborate systems now to help young faculty. I assume there are at the Goldman School as well, Graduate School of Education. But for a long time, we just, I mean, I, I remember doing it. We'd hire law professors. We'd just put them in front of the class. We didn't tell them what to do, what to say. The best that could come out of it was uh, the young professor would say, well, what book did you use? You know, that was considered... A helping hand. So, um, and it was usually the professor's own book, I might add. And, uh, and uh, so, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm conceptually having trouble with it because of the way I, I don't view teachers so atomistically. I do think what you're saying is right, essentially. How you actually accomplish that, I think, is, and, and, and I don't know how you make people say the right things. I don't even know really how institutions nurture Nurture what happened in Union City, if I have that right, David. Uh, it happened, so it's worth studying to find out. Um, but I think it's better. I, I don't know about com- you know community colleges. They have a 15% gradu- graduation rate. I wouldn't consider them hallmarks of success, at least in America. I don't know about Denmark, but uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know what the good examples are, uh, to be honest with you. So, David, final words. We've got well, to end. I just want to say a word to Tony, a word about incentives, and then a sort of general word. The word to Tony is that you duck the question. The question had to do with political frameworks within which these questions arose. The military can, can act in ways that school systems wouldn't dream of acting, right? and other institutions as well. So that's, that's for homework. Certainly colleges could not act like the military. Right. So, so I want to say a little anecdote about colleges. I was appointed to a, quote, commission on undergraduate education here by then-Chancellor Berdahl. Commission was meant to be a big deal, not a committee, but a commission. And the entire charge was President, uh, Chancellor Berdahl walks in the room and says, I haven't thought much about undergraduate education, but you're very smart, so you come up with something. Um, he starts walking out of the room, and I said, Chancellor, with respect, you underestimate what you've done. Well, of course, that would stop anybody in his tracks. You know? And I said, so when you arrived... Teachers who taught freshman seminars, these are one-credit unit seminars, they're above and beyond what you'd normally do, were given $1,000 in books or travel expenses or whatever. You double that to $2,000. And lo and behold, the number of courses increased by almost the same amount, which is only to say that all the faculty are altruists. To some extent, they do respond to incentives. And until you create an incentive for teaching at this university... What, I'm not sure what it is that we're doing here. Um, 
So that's just an, an example of, of my, my sort of despair about higher education because, you know, the, the, the sort of hypocrisy of academics is so impressive. The capacity to produce wonderful language that masks self-interest is amazing. <laughs> All these novels of manners about universities, that's what they are about. <laughs> um, I say this as I'm semi-walking out the, the door of that. Um, <laughs> But here's We've what got I want a security to... detail for you as you walk <laughs> off the podium. Don't worry. Here's what I want to say overall. This is what I, when Henry came to me and said, what would you like to do? You're, you know, you're retiring. What can we do? Do you want a big dinner? Do you want a party? Whatever. You know, and we are going to be having wine and whatever over at the, the, at the Goldman School after this. But I said, what I want is an exchange of ideas, an intellectual event, a lively intellectual conversation. Um, and that's what we've had, and I thank my friends here, and I thank the audience for sitting through this and for participating, and I've never had a standing ovation, and I'm not sure I'm going to make it off the, off the stage with that as, a, that as a memory, but thank you so much for coming. It's great to see you. And thank you, David. David.